great. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you is a blue one, looks like this, and we will be on page 473 in those Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. You've already heard what we're doing today, and you're still here. This is amazing. Uh, To be totally transparent uh, with you, this has uh, been hard for me to reach the conclusion that we ought to spend uh, a block of time together concentrating on what the Scripture has to say about money. In June, uh, my family and I will have uh, been here at Church on Mill for 10 years, and in those 10 years, we have never allocated a block of time to look specifically at what the Scriptures say about money. Uh, Certainly, we've covered the topic as we've worked our way passage by passage through books of the Bible and addressed it in that way, but not um, until this morning have we chosen to set aside a block of time just to concentrate on what the Bible as a whole says about money and possessions. Honestly, I think that was a mistake Uh, in my Uh, concern over being misunderstood. I've uh, neglected to teach uh, something that the Bible speaks so often and so directly about, and I'm sorry. I hope that this will be uh, the start of a conversation for us as a church family that will benefit each of us personally and us as a church family and ultimately help us fulfill together Uh, the mission that we have of making disciples here and around the world more effectively. If you're um, interested in um, the additional ways that are available to you to make the most of this uh, sermon series, you can connect to a gospel community. These are our small groups that meet in homes that gather together to do a whole variety of things, but one of those is to uh, go through a series of questions together about the message in Try to work out experientially what it means in relationship with other people. An additional thing we're going to do in the next, over the next six weeks that we don't normally do is on Monday, mor- on Monday um, evening, a, a blog will go out that will be related to the message from the previous day, but will specifically uh, be designed to give you a practical tool that you can use to try to apply uh, what we've put uh, into our minds on Sunday morning. So uh, the, the sermons will sp- f- focus specifically on a theological idea, and the blog will focus specifically on a, a way of putting it into practice. Um, if you've ever delved into this topic, you'll find that most of the material out there is either uh, pretty um, theologically weighty and great, but lacks a practice, or the material doesn't seem to have any Bible at all, but is pretty good on practical application. We're going to try to strike the best of both worlds together. And so uh, look, be looking for those. You'll find them on the Chirps website down under a featured content on the main page. So those will come up uh, tomorrow. And I get no uh, dollars per click, Okay. It's just for free. Enjoy it. But I think most importantly, what we need to avail ourselves of is is prayer. For for this is a a topic that's that's difficult 
that strikes down to the very core of what we most value. And so let me just briefly, as Tad did, pray again. Father, as we begin this journey, would you please speak to us? We submit ourselves to you. We ask that you'd bring down any, uh, any walls that we might have, that we might hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text for this morning is Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And just a brief word of, of orientation, if you will, this passage falls right smack in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 has become regarded as the Sermon on the Mount, marking the spot at which Jesus gave it. And if Jesus ever gave a manifesto, this would be it. This is Jesus' most significant contribution to our understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And in it, he dresses immensely practical things, like what do the people of God value? What are their priorities? What do they believe? How do Christians relate to each other? How do we relate to people who would very much disagree with us? How do we go about our regular lives during the week? Well, this is the Sermon on the Mount. I would uh, commend the entire thing to you. Take the mere 15 minutes or so it would take for you to read it later today to get the whole scope of what Jesus says. It is broadly regarded by Christians and non-Christians alike as a magnificent piece of literature. But for today, I want to focus just in on these few verses, Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Andy Clare, would you come and read for us? And everyone take a moment to admire Andy's nice haircut. He told me this morning he got it cut this morning. So how is that possible? I cut it myself. Oh, applying the sermon ahead of time. Indeed. Impressive. Indeed. Read for us. <clears throat> Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thank you, brother. Jesus, in these very few uh, verses, gives us a set of commands. And then he uses an analogy to try to explain or work out those commands. And then he ends by sort of hitting us with a cold, hard reality. So in the time we have together this morning, I'd love to visit with you briefly about those three things, the command, the analogy, and the reality behind all of it. Let's start together with the, the command. It's really a pair of commands. If you'll look down again in your Bibles at verses 19 and 20, you'll see a pair of matching commands, one positive and one negative. 
Verse 19 says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Verse 20 says, lay up treasures in heaven. Seems rather simple, doesn't it? Don't do this, do this. If only it were that easy. But you'll notice that the the pairing, if you will, goes beyond just the commands. It also describes the two locations. There's, in other words, descriptions of these two environments in which we can be setting aside or laying up treasure for. You look again at the second half of verse 19, it says that earth is where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. If this were written for Phoenix, it would say where the sun melts to smithereens. Then in, in verse 20, it says, but heaven, heaven is where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. But Wait. There's still more. There's another pairing, not just the command, not just the location, but this one's not as quickly noticeable. Look, at, look again at verse 19. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The New Testament, Matthew, through Revelation, was originally written in what's called Koine Greek. It was the common language of the day. Much of the way English works around the world as the common business language of our day, Greek worked in that way in that day. And in the Greek text, what it actually says here, quite literally, is do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth. The same thing down in verse 20, treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not interesting. The command is actually here about treasuring treasures, just making sure we're doing it in the right place. Friends, you can't escape treasuring. The treasure principle is that we all will treasure something and someone, and we all will have resources through which we must decide what we're going to do with them. So Jesus isn't commanding here somehow the absence of treasuring at all, but rather using or leveraging the treasures that we have for the right place. You see, treasuring treasures for earth is a bad idea because worldly wealth is insecure. It's undependable. Why? Well, it can be stolen. It can be destroyed. Have you watched the stock market in the last two or three weeks? It had one of the most severe downturns it's ever had, only to turn around and have one of the most significant single-day uptakes it's ever had. And everyone's in a panic between the two. You simply can't count on money. Some of us in the room may have had our identity stolen or our savings taken. And everything we ever buy will break down. Don't treasure treasures for here, Jesus says. Instead, treasure treasures for there. Jesus asserts that people in God's kingdom don't think about, don't process, don't handle, don't save 
money and possessions in the way that everyone else does. Not because we're somehow more disciplined or smarter or better or came from better stock, but rather that our allegiance has been radically reoriented by our Savior. That our, our Savior has changed our priorities toward what would honor God and help people as opposed to what would honor us and help us individually. That's simply what it means to treasure treasures in heaven. It means to use what you have in a way that benefits the spread of the gospel and the practical aid of other people. It's using whatever we have as though none of it is ours anyway. As we sang together in that song, all I have is yours. It's the recognition that that's true and then using whether we have a lot or what we think of as a, a normal amount or a very, very little. It's using what we have toward the end of helping people and honoring God. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not anti-money. Jesus is not anti-possessions. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to own a home or to wear clothes that are good enough they don't break down often or to drive a car that might last you a little bit longer than another. If this were a generation ago, it was my parents giving a sermon on this topic, they would have said Christ isn't a commie. Money isn't bad. Possessions are not wrong. Jesus isn't against possessions. He's against a preoccupation with possessions. Christ wants God to consume us. He wants our money not to consume us. At, at issue here in Jesus' sermon is not a call for the absence of all treasures, but a call for the treasures that we do have to be used for godly ends. Now, frankly, if that would become in any way, in a sustained manner, a reality for people like us, then we've got to get down to the root issue. You see, we can create budgets and become more disciplined and save for retirements and give a little away and live more frugally than others and still find ourselves worried about money and consumed with greed. We have to look beyond the, the root, the fruit of the problem down to the root. You see, at the end of the day, our struggles with money and possessions are not at all external. This isn't because of the culture we live in. The issue is not even how we were nurtured growing up, although that certainly has played a role. The issue is that by nature, we are sinners who are quite selfish. Jesus says that this is a matter of the heart. If you look down at verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it's also true that wherever your heart is, 
That's where your money will go. But that, interestingly, is not the point Jesus is making. Jesus is explicitly saying where you invest your dollars and how you use your possessions will expose the loyalty of your heart. It is as though you will be stripped naked. Your money will show all that is true of you. You see, money reveals where our spiritual commitments actually lie. And this is true, of course, in big possessions, big purchases like a car or choosing an education or buying a house. But it's also true in the very little things. How often and to what extent we make purchases at Circle K. All of these things are reflective of where the loyalty of our heart lies. To say it still another way, the best barometer of how things are going between you and Jesus is your money trail. A few weeks ago, I went to the doctor for an annual checkup. I'll spare you the gory details, but... What do the doctors do? Well, they take blood and look at your cholesterol. They do, what's that thing called? The stethoscope until you breathe, until you're dizzy. They ask you all kinds of embarrassing questions. And if there's need, they do more invasive exams. That's not ever needed. <laughs> but friends, there's a, there's, a, there's a physical way of checking out how we're doing physically. Jesus says there's a spiritual way of checking out how you're doing spiritually. And that the very best way to get a spiritual checkup is to look at how you're using your money. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now again, let me say quite clearly, the issue here is not how much you make or what kind of car you drive or what little label is behind your shirt. The issue is your heart. Christians treasure God. Christians treasure God. Christians trust God. Christians have been freed from being owned by that which we think we own. Christians have been set free from guilt caused by greed. Christians no longer live for the little kingdom of self, but the great kingdom of God. This is what Christians do. You see, if we treasure God, Jesus is telling us, We'll leverage the money we do have for spiritual gains. This isn't a prescription to give away everything all the time, but rather to make sure that you're using what you do have, all of it, in a way that honors God and helps people. What captivates our lives as believers won't be the stockpiling of more and more and more and more and more stuff. 
Instead, it'll be using our resources to honor God and help people. And so quite literally at the start of this series, what we need to do is say in a series about money, the most important thing isn't money. The most important thing is the heart. Paul Tripp in his latest book has addressed the issue of money and he says this, Addressing the issue of money and understanding money problems don't begin with money and budget information. They begin with surrender. You and I will never use money the way it was meant to be used. And we will never break disastrous money habits if we're not living in light of the fact that life is not about us. The first step in money sanity is surrendering to the glory of one greater That is so well put. Your pastors, as we've been planning for this series, have been praying that God would benefit all of us in such a way that we would be surrendering to Him. For where our treasure is, church, there our hearts will be also. So that's the command Jesus gives. Don't store up treasures for here, but rather store up treasures for there. Now, think with me just a moment about a very practical issue. When we're done here, most of us are going to leave and go eat. Hopefully, we'll eat well and enjoy it deeply, right? You may go home. You may go fast food. You may go, as my family used to say, to a nice sit-down restaurant. I was thinking about what Hansley said in the introduction. Uh, One of the places I moved as a child was to Tennessee. And we had moved from the west to Clarksville, Tennessee. And I was a teenager. I'll never forget sitting down in the restaurant. And the waitress came by and said, what kind of Coke you want? They called everything Coke. Depended on what kind of Coke. So as we think together about money, let's think together about food for a minute. Is there a way to use food to store up treasures in heaven? Now, I pick that because food is quite literally something that passes quickly. Food is only beneficial to you for a very, very, very short amount of time. Food doesn't last. Food can't be stored up and somehow banked and used long, 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 long into the future. But is there a way that money purchased, purchase, money used to purchase food can be used to store up treasures in heaven? Well, yes. One simple way is as you eat that meal you're going to eat, that even if you're by yourself, you take a moment to thank God, to say, God, everything I have is yours. And the fact that this tastes good is the miracle of your kindness. The fact that I have something to eat is not due to my ingenuity, my discipline, my hard work, or those who've left me with resources. It's ultimately due to your graciousness to me. And then enjoy it. And in doing so, you are storing up treasures in heaven. 
but you're looking away from yourself to the one who's provided it. Another simple way to do that is to invite somebody else with you. Maybe, maybe you notice somebody new today. You want to go invite them. Maybe there's a church member you haven't spent much time with. You want to invite him or her. Maybe you get together with a family member. But in that time together, use some of the conversation, not just to be about the weather or what's coming up this week, but specifically about things that we have to be grateful for, areas in which we want to grow this year. And by investing in another person, you are storing up treasures in heaven. And perhaps the clearest way we could do so with a meal is that we would be mindful of people we come across that might not have the means with which to get that meal for themselves. There are many, many, many texts in the Bible that would tell us we are storing up treasures as we share food with those in need. So even in something as temporary as food, we can labor to store up treasures in heaven. That's the command Jesus gives us. And then like any good preacher would, Jesus goes from a directive to an analogy. And the analogy is always, of course, designed to make the point clearer. The problem for us is in this case, it doesn't do that. At least not for me. As I read this next part of the text over and over and over, I struggled to figure out what in the world is being said here. The problem isn't that Jesus wasn't clear. The, the, the problem is that we're 2,000 years removed from his words. And in some ways, we are culturally different than the circumstances in which Jesus gave this text. We don't use the language anymore of a single eye. I don't ever hear anybody talking about a single eye. We might say, I'm catching a red eye, but that's about it. But what this means is bound up in that imagery that is uncommon to us today. So let me try to illustrate it for you in a way that makes the point Jesus is making. The, the eye or our eyes are what take in the light that's around us. And by taking in the light that's around us, we can see where we're going. And so if your eyes are good, if they work, if they're healthy, then you can absorb what's around you and go about life with relative ease and effectiveness. But if your eyes are going bad, if you can't see well, then that will have a profound impact on your whole body. That's what Jesus is saying. And so walk into a lit room and your eyes will soak up everything there. But walk into a dark room and your eyes won't be able to see anything. So imagine with me you've gone to a hotel room you've never been in before. And you exhaustedly, boldly go into the room. It's pitch dark, but you pretend like it's light. What's going to happen? You're going to run into something. You're going to say words you have to try and take back. You are going to fall on your face, and you're going to feel incredibly silly. Why? Well, be because you've not availed yourself of the light needed to live in a healthy way. 
going to result, therefore, in pain. Jesus' analogy here is designed to tell us it's possible to go into the hotel room of your life and think that the light is on, to think that you've got this area of your life, money and possessions, under control, that it's not an issue for you, and to go about your business as though the room is lit up well, only to find that you've been self-deceived and what you thought was light turns out to be darkness, that this is, in fact, a problem. And when we're self-deceived in that way, it will have an impact on the whole body, on every aspect of our lives. Friend, perhaps unlike any other arena, our relationship to money and possessions carries with it an enormous capacity for self-deception. Think about, for example, the Christmas tree. Many of us were recently around the tree, some of us with people we enjoyed and some of us not. But either way, that was a joke, come on. But as we gathered around that tree, we probably showed up there with some gifts and most likely gifts we were happy to bring, excited to give away. But was there a moment as those things were unwrapped that you found yourself internally a little envious of something somebody else got? Or did you find yourself a little jealous that mom or dad spent what you think is more on the other kid than you? Or did you find yourself irritated that that somebody special didn't get you what you wanted and didn't put the time and effort into it? Friends, th those are simple ways in which you may have seen this happening in your own life. That's what Jesus' analogy is about. We are so amazingly deceived into thinking that this isn't a problem for us. Church, what you and I gaze on, what we're captivated by, what we find ourselves thinking about, worrying about, as we'll talk about next week, desirous of. These are the things that will profoundly determine the health of our entire lives. And Jesus says, in a way, unlike anything else, if our interests are divided, if we have no clear vision in relationship to money and possessions, we will be in spiritual darkness. There's a famous Irish hymn. No, I won't sing it that speaks to this issue so amazingly well. Every time we sing it, I find myself thinking, I wonder how many people in the room actually have any idea what that's talking about. Not as though you don't know your Bible well, but simply because the language is so archaic. It's so old. It's so different than how we talk. Try with me real hard just to hear one verse and to hear it in relationship to what we've said so far. The song is called, Be Thou My Vision. What that means is just, God, fill my sight. Captivate me with your greatness. 
But here's one verse. It says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Be thou my inheritance now and always. Be thou and thou only first in my heart. O high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Isn't that beautiful? And friends, that may have been written a thousand years ago, but there could not be something more timely for us today. So Jesus gives a command, don't do this, do this. And then he gives this analogy that hopefully is clearer now. But then he ends with what is most certainly a full case of dynamite, a cold, hard, explosive reality. It's right there in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One author I read this week described what Jesus means in this way. We try so hard to create heaven on earth and to throw in a little Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. Jesus proclaims that unless we're willing to serve him wholeheartedly in every area of life, but particularly with our material resources, we cannot claim to be serving him at all. That is hard to hear, isn't it? But it's exactly right. Church, if we treasure God, we will leverage whatever he entrusts us with for spiritual gain. But if we treasure ourselves, then here's what's happening. We begin that journey by leveraging our money. But eventually, that money ends up leveraging us. You see, all of us are slaves of something. The translators have been gracious to us in this passage. There's a, a bit of political correctness, if you will, because the word serve is actually the word slave. What we're being told is you can't be a slave to God and money concurrently. It will either be one or the other. There is no mixture of the two. It's either God or it's money and possessions. Eventually, our resources will leverage us. We become slaves to them. Our possessions possess us. And what or who we are slaves to has everything to do with what we treasure. None of us are masters. All of us are slaves. And I recognize how inappropriate it is to talk like that. But we need to hear it. What are you a slave to? What or who owns you? You need look no further than your money. 
Do the things you purchase come with this sense of, I have to keep this in bubble wrap because it might get dirty or scratched or I might loan it and it never come back? Are you panicked about your stuff? Or do you see what you own as tools to use, to enjoy, and to share? Do you find that your income is always chasing your lifestyle? Do you find that you're constantly thinking about, if I just had a little bit more, then everything would be good? Are you consistently finding there is more month than there is money, irrespective of how much is coming in? Can you not remember the last time you shared or gave? Friends, these may, in fact, be indicators of a slavery you are unaware of. Either God or greed will have your total allegiance, so choose wisely. Now, where does all this leave us? We've we've looked at a set of commands Jesus gave. We've taken his weird single-eye analogy and unpacked it. We've listened to a hard word, a cold, stark reality. What do we do with this? I think the place to end a sermon like this is not simply to leave us dangling here, wallowing in guilt, nor is it to inspire you to go out and build a budget so you can have a better you. Friends, what we need this morning is a renewed appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we need is a deeper awareness of just how much He loves us. So I'd rather end like this. Christian, there's no money pit so deep that God's grace can't lift you up out of it. Christian, there's no mountain of debt so high that God's grace can't climb it. Christian, there's no materialism so pervasive that God's grace can't cleanse you of it. And Christian, there's no financial failure so huge that God's grace won't cover it. Can I get a hallelujah? This is the best news we could possibly hear. Because all of us, universally, have failed in this area of life. And all of us need the grace of God. There's not a single person in the room who has not exceeded the bounds of the ability of God to forgive. God never writes a check of grace that bounces. The grace of God has overdraft protection. So Christian, Surrender afresh and anew to Him today. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the fundamental message of Church on Mill and of the Bible isn't. Do some better things with your money and you'll find 
God's kind with you and will give you more. Now, if you go home and turn on your TV or look up your most popular YouTube preachers, that is exactly what they'll tell you. And it is a lie. It is not true. It is fueled by greed for selfish gain. What God says, His most essential, specific, wonderful message is that you have incurred a debt you cannot possibly pay, a moral debt. You see, you have a creator, and that creator you have failed to obey just like every other created person had. And yet Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in the first century outside Jerusalem so that your sin debt would be transferred to his account and that he might die in order for your debt to be forgiven. And if this morning you will turn from sin and turn to him, surrendering your allegiance from yourself to the God who has made you and the Jesus who died for you, then you will find your sin debt free and clear. You will find not simply your account at zero, but the endless riches of God morally, yours forever. That is the central message of the Bible. And so we'd invite you today to trust in this one in whom all the treasures of God are found. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use your word now to change us. We pray that we would both not remain in darkness as though we think we have everything covered here, but we don't. And yet that we would not swing into a wallowing, self-pitying, grace-denying guilt. God, use your word now to... Invest in us a deeper understanding of what it looks like to treasure not treasures on earth, but to treasure you and store up treasures in heaven. And I pray even as we go to eat in a few minutes, that's what we would be doing. I pray also for those in the room who have yet to trust Christ, that they would be overwhelmed by the offer of the love of God in Christ. Father, raise up among us a church that is generous, that Tempe might be overflowing with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor. My name is Mike. I serve on staff here with Family Ministry and I have a couple of announcements for us. While I do that, our ushers are going to come forward and take up the offering so that our members can give. And uh, if you are visiting with us and you filled out a guest information card, now would be a great time to share that with us so we can get to know you better. <clears throat> this next Wednesday is the uh, launch night for our spring semester of our Disciple Makers classes. Uh, this semester we'll be offering Disciple Makers 2 and Disciple Makers 4. Join us at 6.30 this coming Wednesday in the auditorium right here to hear about the classes, pick up the schedules, the syllabuses, syllabus, syllabi, syllabi. And the first books that we'll be reading through. 
Um, if you haven't taken uh, Disciple Makers 1, you can still take Disciple Makers 2 and then join us next fall uh, for Disciple Makers 1. So uh, that's this coming Wednesday. Also this coming Wednesday, our preschool children and student activities will start back up. If you have not yet found a place to serve at Church on Bell and are looking for such an opportunity to start the new year, come and see me. I would love to connect you with some opportunities we have on Wednesday nights to serve with preschoolers and children. Stand with me now. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 11 to send us out.